You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, thank goodness. Okay. Oh, okay. Jeez. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Uh, sorry for the delay, everyone. And thanks Thanks for helping me out. Uh, isn't technology wonderful, right up until it isn't? Um, so, okay. Um, <laughs> well, we're off to a rough start, but hopefully we can make up for lost time here. Uh, this is a, I've got a story of escape today that I've uh, been uh, loving ever since I first started researching it. I wanted to... Um, tell a much larger story. So I started writing all this about many different peoples who were um, trying to escape from the Mongols. And then, of course, I realized I only got the 20 minutes really and change to work with. So I had to really scale it back. So I picked out just one particular story, which has always been one of my favorites. So just to drop right in, um, in media res, right in the middle of the action, um, we're in the lifetime of Genghis Khan, Temujin, who's at the top of his game. Uh, and this is the tale of one exceptionally foolish governor and his boss, the Shah, in an empire called Khwarezmia. The year is uh, 1217. Um, the Mongols rule not only their own lands, but also northern China. And they've just gotten an effective stranglehold over the critical link of the Silk Road between the Chinese and Muslim worlds. Uh, so they're not just the uh, the central artery of the global trade network in the 13th century, but they're also its guardians and gatekeepers. The Khan himself was nearing 60 years old, which is venerable um, enough in these this day and age, but it was positively ancient by the standards of the day. And in the course of his single life, he'd done more than any one of his people or forebears could have possibly dreamed. They had more goods and luxuries than anyone had ever known uh, before, more than they could use in a dozen lifetimes, and with more pouring in from all corners of the world day after day. Um, so as he's getting into his winding down years, uh, he's trying to shift gears and become uh, Genghis, the emperor of trade, rather than the world conqueror. So he reaches out to the most likely candidate, the emir of his powerful new neighbor far to the west, the emir of Khwarezmia, uh, whose own mighty Turco-Persian empire extended all the way from Afghanistan uh, all the way to the Black Sea. The ruler of this empire is um, Allah ad-Din Muhammad II, who'd come to the throne at the age of 31 in the year 1200, just six years after his kingdom's formation. So his dad... Uh, wins the kingdom for the most part, but he completes the conquest. And he spends a subsequent decade and a half following up his father's campaign to expand and consolidate Khwarezmian rulership over the whole half or over the whole of his region. Simply put, he was uh, every bit the conquering king within his own piece of the world that Genghis Khan was in his part of the world. Yet by 1215, 
neither had heard of the other. They were a literal world apart with another kingdom, Karakitan, firmly between them and acting as kind of a civilizational buffer state. That mutual ignorance would crumble following Muhammad learning of a, what he termed a golden empire of the Jurchun, which was Northern China. And so he sends a mission expecting to find a vast thriving civilization that he can do trade with, but instead he stumbles upon the aftermath, the still smoldering ruins of the former Jurchen capital, Zhongdu, which is modern Beijing, um, after Genghis had gotten through with it, with sun-bleached bones stacked atop one, one each other all the way to the horizon. As of 1217, uh, in the course of pursuing an old rival into Khwarezmian territory, Genghis Khan also now learned of a seeming mirror image of himself to the west. This is Khwarezmia. Uh, a ruler with whom he had no grudge or feud or any history, and someone far enough away that didn't not seem like any kind of a physical threat to him. So that meant someone that you could open trade relations with. Um, <clears throat> so he, toward the latter end of the year, sent three ambassadors with uh, presents to ask that their people might be traded with safe, uh, traded with safely. The Mongol embassy would arrive in the spring of 1218, and deliver uh, the message and the gifts, the friendship of the great Khan. The letter re reads, um, I have the greatest desire to live in peace with you. I have no need to covet other dominions. We have an equal interest in fostering trade between our subjects. After several days of further negotiation, Amir Muhammad at last agreed with a trade treaty to be struck. Upon learning of the Amir's acceptance, uh, he began, or the, the great Khan begins making arrangements to send forth an initial shipment, a show of good faith and kind of an, an investment in future details. This consists of about 500 merchants and their retinues into a giant caravan with their mounts and cards laden with all forms of luxury goods to the awaiting Muhammad at his capital city in Samarkand. Fatefully, though, the Mongol caravan's route passed through the Khwarezmian province of Sir Darya and its regional capital, the city Ochar. <clears throat> the governor of Ochar, a guy named Inalchuk, was the one who stopped the caravan's procession, and after meeting with their ambassador and the other heads of the group, ordered them all detained. Though excuses were offered, it was painfully obvious that the question simply, uh, that the governor simply meant to seize the caravan's cargo and take it for himself. Uh, upon taking the Mongol caravan captive, he sent a message to his boss, the emir, telling him that he'd captured a host of Mongol, what he called spies, and proposed that they be immediately executed. Now, whether the, the emir actually believed the governor's accusations or just saw a very convenient opportunity to seize the goods for himself and take his cut without the need to pay it back in kind, he agreed to the execution of the entire party and to, that the stolen goods should all be taken to the nearby trade city of Bukhara to be sold off and their profits divided out. And so it was done and it might've simply ended there um, with this giant Mongol caravan just disappearing somewhere on route. Nobody ever knew what happened. That happened all the time, except one guy manages to get away and flees all the way back to Mongolia to bear witness to the Khwarezmian's treacheries. So this is a no, no. Um, 
And in spite of the fact that this is one of the most egregious offenses that you could do, especially against the Mongols, um, Genghis Khan is not quite willing to throw in the towel on this whole enterprise yet. And he makes one final attempt to avoid all-out war. A new embassy is sent to the Khwarezmian capital, this time consisting of only uh, one Muslim and two Mongols to demand an explanation for Amir from Amir Muhammad for this unforgivable breach of etiquette. Perhaps after all, the Amir himself was blameless and the blood lay on the offending governor's hands alone. If that were the case, and that was explained as such, then Muhammad simply needed to turn over the governor of Ochar to them in chains to be taken back to Mongolia and face the Khan's justice. At this, Muhammad balked. He'd do no such thing. Muhammad II's response was swift and damning. The Muslim ambassador was executed on the spot, and the two Mongols were instructed to ride all the way back to Mongolia and inform whatever little king they served that if he wanted his treasure back so badly, he'd have to come and take it if he could. Yet before they were allowed to leave with their lives, the emir had one final insult, which was to shave their beards off, an extreme sign of humiliation. And the executed ambassador's head was then put in a box and sent back with them. They arrived back at the great Khan's yurt in late 1218, bearing their fateful response from the emir. Now, obviously, Muhammad had calculated to humiliate the Mongol leader and teach him his place in the world order. Yet instead of putting Genghis Khan in his place, he'd unwittingly signed the death warrant, not just of himself, nor even just his entire nation, but the entire civilizational order upon which it was all established. Uh, the writer Juvani would later put it that the governor of Ochar's attack wiped out not just a caravan, but laid waste to the whole world. And he wasn't wrong. It was 1219, the year of the hare, that the Mongols set out for Khwarezmia to bring justice to its leader. As they rode out, the Khan took stop of the, the intelligence his spies and informants had been able to gather about this latest foe. As ever, Genghis prided himself on knowing all he could about his friends and foes alike, sussing out any areas of strength that should be avoided and weak points that he could fracture. This last his agents had found in abundance. Muhammad, you see, had built his empire on a much different combination of factors than the Mongol regime. The mass of the people across Khwarezmia were regarded as workers and obliged to show utter submission. The primary Islamic population of these regions was not only, uh, was only aware of a tribal relationship, there was no notion of nationalism. Also, the Khwarezmian army uh, was recruited mainly from foreign mercenaries of Turkish origin, and they terrorized the people with savage cruelty. This army of mercenaries was, however, the only support that Muhammad had to his throne. This was all bad enough, but it was compounded and exacerbated by his own apparent lack of realization about the precarious position these circumstances put him in. Although he was, in comparison with Genghis Khan, highly educated, he was also obsessed with delusions of grandeur, and he um, imagined that the mere size of his empire was enough to ensure his ultimate success. This would soon be put to the test. Famously, Genghis employed one of his favorite tactics in this initial invasion of Khwarezmia, that of attack from a direction that the enemy thinks to be impossible. Though a division of his warriors kept up the appearance of a typical line of attack by advancing the usual direction against the border cities, Genghis and the backbone of his force instead headed into and through the Kizil Kum, which the 
is also known as the Red Sand Desert in Uzbekistan. Summer temperatures there could get to more than 125 degrees Fahrenheit. And so it was with good reason that caravans along the Silk Road for more than a thousand years had detoured hundreds of mile, miles around this deadly wasteland. But by allying with the local desert nomads, Genghis was able to plunge his army through it and arrive more or less intact on the other side, leaving the Charismian forces not just outflanked, but totally, their minds are blown. Um, <clears throat> in droves, the populations fled to the Mongol lines in order to submit themselves before facing destruction. <clears throat> and also bring with them further information about the, the Khorasmian's weakness. Elsewise, many more fled in the opposite direction to the nearest great city of the region, Bukhara. As far as the Mongol commanders were concerned, this was actually the better outcome. As before, they now used terror as a means to stretch the supply limits of this society to and then past its breaking points. They would hide behind their walls, and if they did that, then why not fill them as much as possible with useless mouths that they would then have to feed? Um, okay, so as I said before, the greater part of this Charisman army were, in fact, mercenaries who'd rather early on in the conflicts begun doing the math in their heads and determining that no matter what they were being paid, it wasn't enough that they were gonna be dead by the end. As such, entire garrisons of Charisman troops closed and sealed their city gates, but then just began negotiating with the Mongol armies once they arrived. They appeared to think that given the fact that a large number of these Mongol uh, soldiers were actually Turks like them, that they could bargain their way out of inevitable death and join the winning side, maybe even get a better deal in the process. The Mongol armies patiently listened to what these people had to say and their terms. Sure thing. Yeah, sure. Open the gates and we'll talk about it. We'll let you live. You can join us. Uh-huh. Yeah, whatever you say. Just open the gates first. <clears throat> and so when the Turks were sufficiently satisfied that they were totally about to be on, in uh, with the Mongols and join up, they would open the gates and promised and let the conquerors inside to be duly disarmed and mustered in the city square alongside everyone else. And only to realize far too late that all those nice and honeyed words that they've been told from the outside of the wall now meant exactly nothing. Now that the Mongols were inside the walls. What possible use could the great Khan or any of his commanders have for cowardly soldiers who fought only for money and would turn their cloaks to the first sign of trouble? The Khan valued above all else loyalty. And just because you cheated on your prince for me, that doesn't make you any less of a cheater now. Therefore, the terms of the treaty, the deal, were retroactively amended. They would one and all receive precisely the award to their service to the Khan that their actions deserved, a traitor's execution to the last man. The city of Ochar would fall in the night through one of the many acts of self-serving treachery by the Turkic guardsmen opening the gates to the Mongols in an attempt to spare their own skins. In short order and without much resistance, as much as 90% of the soldiers garrisoned in the city were either killed as they slept or in the subsequent slaughter. That left perhaps as many as two to 6,000 troops alive and within the central citadel where they were able to bar the gates and man the walls with the governor protected inside. The siege would last for five months until at last they messed up, once again through an act of cowardice. The senior commander of the guard attempted to flee through a postern gate, but was immediately caught and executed, for treachery of course, by the Mongol besiegers. Then they forced their way in. 
Governor Inalchuk barricaded himself in the, in the inner sanctum with several hundred defenders. Since the Mongols had ordered to take Inalchuk alive, there followed a slow, methodical attack that lasted another month. Realizing they were doomed, the defenders started staging suicide-style attacks on these Mongol spearmen and bowmen, some 50 at a time. Until finally, Inalchuk and his few surviving bodyguards were trapped on the upper floor. At last, the governor was taken in chains. After the appropriate pomp and ceremony for one so infamous to the Mongols for his crimes against them, he faced his execution. Now, there's two different versions of this. The more colorful telling is a truly karmic death for the greedy governor. All this had been started over his lust for gold and silver, and so that it, let it thus end that way. The governor was restrained, and then ingots of precious metals were melted down in cauldrons, and then, yeah, just like in Game of Thrones, the molten streams were poured into his eyes and ears. Does it sound really awesome? Yeah. Did it go that way? Probably not. Uh, in the end, creative and poetic though it would have been, it's not very Mongol. Mongols tended to view things in a much more simplistic, down-to-earth term. Uh, why waste the time, and more importantly, why waste the gold on such an exotic method? Uh, much more likely, uh, given the Mongol aversion to shedding noble blood, they probably sewed him up into a sack or one of his own carpets, and then either had horses run over him repeatedly until he died, or threw him into a river to drown. Less flashy, but much more typically Mongol. Um, okay, February 2020, the year of the dragon. Genghis Khan reaches the great city of Bukhara with a population of some 300,000, and the, where the, his stolen treasures have been taken as sold, marking it out as a, a real target for him. They invest the city in a siege, which lasts for only three days this time, before the garrison force within the city, 20,000 soldiers strong, sallied forth, but not to try to fight the Mongols, but try to break out through the Mongol lines and escape. A few managed to reach the far banks and make good their escape, but almost everybody else was wiped out as they tried to cross the river. The Mongols then were able to turn back to a now completely undefended city, and abandoning all hope, the populace surrendered and opened the gates allowing the conquerors inside. Given its singular position in the mind of the great Khan, Bukhara would serve as a lesson. Genghis broke with his lifelong tradition of avoiding setting foot in the disgusting confines of settled cities. He was playing to the cameras here, as it were, a sweeping propagandistic gesture that he would ride into the city gates surrounded by his honored guard of Nokor companions and the cities, uh, into the city's general square. The townspeople had been herded like cattle by their conquerors to amass here. Genghis proceeded to the largest and most ornate building in the city and asked if this was the house of the ruler. No, he was informed, it was in fact the great mosque and housed not of uh, an earthly ruler, but of God himself. Genghis made no reply to this. He seemed to not really understand the, uh, the concept because for the Mongols, the one God was the eternal blue sky that stretched from horizon to horizon in every direction. Um, God presided over the whole earth. He couldn't be cooped up in a house of stone like a prisoner or a caged animal. Nevertheless, he dismounted, proceeded in, and proceeded inside. In the only known instance of him ever going inside a permanent building. <clears throat> when he emerged at last from the great mosque, Genghis Khan strode to the center of the square and called out, demanding that the wealthy tradesmen, merchants, and heads of family of the city 280 in all, be brought forth. When they'd been amassed and assembled, 
Genghis strode up the steps of the mosque before turning to the waiting crowds, elite and commoner alike. And through interpreters, he lectured them on the nature of sin and the specific sins that had been committed by their emir and the elites of the city. Once again, Juvani would have put it to parchment and write it down the great Khan's words. O people, know that you have committed great sins, and that is the, it is the great ones among you who have committed these sins. If you ask me what proof I have for these words, I say it is because I am the punishment of God. And if you had not committed these sins, God would not have sent a punishment, punishment like me upon you. Now, fearsome enough in their own right, but these were understood by the notable present to be not truly personal or vindictive in nature, but fitting of the circumstances surrounding them. Perhaps God had sent such a fate, fate unto them for their blindness and arrogance. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. The Great Khan turned at last to the Great Redoubt of Bukhara. The, city at the, uh, the citadel at the city's heart. Within the impenetrable stone walls, 400 cavalrymen who had not received the memo about trying to break out sat in wait. They resisted the Mongol storm for a further 12 days. That's when the Chinese designed and manned siege engines began rolling in and being assembled. Catapults, trebuchets, mangonels, hurling stones and explosive at and atop the structure. Moreover, the Mongol commanders were only too happy to demand that these surrendered populace, man and woman, old and young alike, now serve their new Khan in the further liberation of their city, forcing prisoners, in some cases the captured comrades of the men still in the citadel, to rush forward until their bodies filled the moats and made live ramparts over which other prisoners pushed engines of war. When the surviving soldiers in the city had finally had enough and surrendered, they were led out of the fortress, divided into units of 10, and then exterminated to the last man with a sort of ruthless, almost industrial efficiency that the world had virtually never seen before. It was the last time <clears throat> for the remaining populace of Bukhara to learn of their own collective fates. For the wealthy merchants and traders, it would be absolute exile. Genghis decreed that their city and everything in it save the clothes currently on their backs were forfeit. They were to leave immediately and never return and anyone caught trying to remain or hide or return to seek their possessions would be ruthlessly slaughtered. To the populace at large, their sentences proved little better. They were now servants of the great Khan, and they would be utilized exactly as such. Finally, either by accident or simply malice, the city was set ablaze and made almost entirely from wood and straw as it was, burned almost entirely to the ground. The fate of Bukhara would serve as a grisly template for the remaining conquest of Khorizmia. Genghis's juggernaut rolled eastward toward Samarkand, where Muhammad II finally realized that he'd made a huge mistake. Facing this once unthinkable but suddenly inevitable prospect, 
Muhammad II fled, abandoning his capital and populace to their grisly fates and riding out at top speed across the countryside as fast as his mount could carry him away from the Mongols who eagerly pursued him. In each place he stopped, he desperately warned all who would listen what was coming for them all and that they should likewise abandon their lands, take what they could and burn what they couldn't take and then flee with him. Genghis, being now 60, simply wasn't quite feeling up to chasing the emir across Central Asia, but knew that it needed to be done if this war could truly end in victory. Thus it would fall to his trusted Jeb and Subadai with their own combined Tumans to hound the emir across modern Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and Iran, coming as close as a mere day's ride behind the fleeing prince at times, until they arrived at the shores of the Caspian Sea. Abandoning, abandoning his possessions, Muhammad II and a small retinue, including his son, Jalal al-Din, rode out to a small island beyond the reach of the Mongols, where, having at last evaded his tormentors, al, uh, um, Amir Allah al-Din Muhammad II of Khwarezmia, who'd once thought himself king of kings, died in poverty, despair, and shock at all he'd lost at the age of 50. So I, th I think that was 20-ish minutes. <laughs> How did I do? Absolutely. I, I don't know if you got that directly from Juvani, but it's certainly it's it's kind of almost um, to the uh, to the letter, isn't it? Uh, I'm sure I'm sure he pulled from that. At least some. Oh, great. Okay. So what's the what's the history of China uh, episode I'm most proud of? Ooh. Um, well, I really like my Mongol series, if you couldn't tell. Um, uh, another episode that I like is um, the Song of Rice and Flour episode, which is a one-off strange one about uh, rice and how to make rice, uh, which is more interesting than you probably think it is. Um, let's see. Those ones leap immediately to mind, but one of the things I, I am very happy to be able to say that as I go on and I keep making more and more episodes, I become progressively happier uh, with them. So I'm very much enjoying the uh, the early Ming that we're doing right now um, as well. Did anyone manage to successfully set up diplomatic relations with Genghis? Um, well... Let's see. They they had a really um, bad. Uh, no, there there was not a whole lot of great luck with with Genghis Khan. Uh, probably the closest we could say is the Koreans, uh, who kind of managed to only be sort of conquered and sort of made themselves this this special status where they would the Korean princes would then be married uh, into the Khan's extended family marrying daughters. And that would kind of afford them this sort of special status. But it was also not exactly a wonderful uh, marriage relationship anyway, because uh, by marrying into the Khan's family, the your new wife, the princess, would basically go to your place and rule in your name as queen. And you, the new husband, would then be sent as now a general in the Mongol armies to the front lines. And, you know, you might be sent somewhere uh, on purpose where you weren't expected to really come back. Uh, 
otherwise, you know, the, the problem with, with diplomatic relations with the Mongols, and especially the early Mongols, uh, was that there linguistically wasn't yet a word in Mongolia that meant um, peace without surrender. There was conceptually one and the same. So the first thing they do is, hi, hi nice to meet you, where the Mongols bow down to us or else. And then if uh, hostilities commenced, then that meant that you you were doomed. <laughs> there, there wasn't a, a partial victory that the, the Mongol Empire was going to be happy with. Okay, uh, let's see, next question. Prior to Mongolian unification, the Mongols are split into various tribal groups. Yes. There were religious differences between Mongols. Yes. Uh, did the Chinese and Arab Persian world comment on or notice the variety of faith faiths among the Mongols? Yeah, so the, the Mongols are pretty interesting in the 13th century um, because of their wide tolerance of a lot of religions. They're, they have this... Uh, policy where they have their own religions. I mentioned it in my presentation. It's called Tangriism, where they believe in the great blue sky, and it's shamanistic. Um, but then they would go and say, we don't, we don't really care. You can be whatever you want to be. You want to be a Muslim? Fine. You want to be a Christian? Fine. As long as you say a prayer for the health and success of the Khan and, and the empire, it's cool. Um, and no fighting amongst yourselves while you're while you're here. Um, so later on, they would get uh, Mongol uh, Mongol princes who were Muslim, uh, some who were uh, Christian. In fact, Kublai's mother, um, Kublai is Genghis's grandson who conquers China, um, mother was a uh, Naiman Christian, so a Church of the East. Um, so he had respect for that as well. Did the Chinese or Arab Persians comment on that? I mean, they were sort of so terrified about what was going on and the destruction being wrought that they didn't really uh, find the time to super comment on that. The The European Christians certainly weren't very happy about that. Although there was, they also thought for a while that, um, you know, they were fighting the, the Crusades against the Islamic world at the time. And they started getting these weird reports from this other army attacking from the east against the Arab world as well. And that for about five minutes, they thought that it might be this mythological Christian king come back to life. Um, that's disabused pretty quickly. But they still think that maybe the enemy of my enemy can be my friend. And it turns out, no, you're not going to make friends with the Mongols. Um, is the story well known in the Mideast today? Yeah, it is. Uh, a lot of the writers, a lot of the sources that we have are actually um, in Arabic or initially and then translated. And uh, it is it is well known in the Middle East as sort of the, the nightmare boogeyman uh, of the 13th century. This is the closest the Muslim world really comes to uh, ultimately just ultimate destruction, um, far more than far more damage than the Crusades would ever do. Um and there, there are some writers at the time who try to just sort of pretend it didn't happen. Uh, they want to think, okay, well, maybe we'll just not talk about it and they'll kind of, kind of go away. But it today, it's oh, it's very well known. Um, okay, let's see here. Let's see. Okay. What was what was the case as Belli for the con conquest of countries west of Khwarezm? 
so why do that? Well, what they do for the countries west of Khwarezm is um, it starts becoming much, much more of a because it's there <laughs> situation. Um, they send this this raid in force with uh, led by uh, Subadai and uh, Jeb, twenty thousand soldiers strong, just to go see what's over there. And they take this force of twenty thousand soldiers and they just start raiding and pillaging all across the Mid East, up through Georgia, up into Russia, and then they swing back around and like, oh, well, that's over there, so we should go get that. And the cases, I think, the closest thing the cases Belli you'd get to is that they've developed this ideology that we're not just going to conquer Mongolia. We actually deserve to rule the entire world. Uh, that is our mandate. And so we're going to do that. And if we encounter you and you don't immediately fall down to your knees and surrender to us, then that's, that's cause enough. Um, why did the Mongols have the prohibition against drawing blood? Yeah. Uh, this is especially for nobility. And not only their own nobility, but um, the uh, even captured enemy no nobles as well. And the prohibition comes from the their own religion, which is that the blood is kind of the essence of the soul, and to spill blood uh, would offend both the sky and the earth. Uh, to spill it on the ground would be polluting the earth, and if you do it within the sight of the, the blue sky, then that, that offends that as well. Um, and it would dissipate the soul before it was ready to leave the body. Even when they're killing animals to eat them, what they would do is they'd go behind the tent into the shade where the sun couldn't see it and then hammer strike it and try to do it without um, drawing blood. Um, yeah. And, but for the, for regular people, for uh, normal folk, uh, the, the many... Uh, millions upon millions of, of commoners, there was no such prohibition. They would be slaughtered in industrial capacity um, with the most convenient available method, usually sword decapitation. Yeah. Did I miss anything? I think I got questions. So I think I, I think I got through all the questions. I'll take a look again. Um, anything? Else? Oh, oh, there's a <laughs> unrelated topic. But any thoughts on Chinese baijiu? Um, mm, I've had a lot of it, and I, I it's a little much for me. Um, it's an acquired taste and a taste that I, even for all my years here, I've, I've never really acquired or appreciated truly. I, I can be made to drink it at weddings and what have you, but uh, I don't do it of my own accord. I think George R.R. R. Martin, I think he, he's read enough. He's well-read enough. He probably knows Juvaney. He probably knows the story. Um, or maybe heard, maybe it came down through another way. I, I, I would not be surprised if he knew the story. What was the metal color should I make? Oh, 
Oh, so is the, the question I think is um, like, how are they making all these weapons? They would capture um, populations, capture artisans and uh, bring them back to Mongolia and say, you work for us now. And so that's where they started getting these, these weapons before this, they were real at the beginning of Genghis's reign when he was not Genghis yet, but just Temujin, they were really bare bonesing it. They were, they, the Mongols did not have good equipment. They, it was just, you know, it was almost stone uh, arrowheads from t sometimes and very little metal content, but then they start conquering and capturing these um, artisans. And that if they think, if they, discover that you're a captive and you know how to do something special like that. They're going to scoop you up and you are, that's what you do for the rest of your life. Now. Why did so many Mongol leaders drink themselves to death? Yeah, it's a big one. Um, they did that because in the culture of the steppe, it was common at every meal to be eating and drinking. Um, and the, the drink of choice was something called Irog, which is this very low ABV fermented milk beverage. And so they just be drinking it by the cup full, not even thinking about it. And then they get up into North China, especially, and the question came earlier of, about uh, Baijo. And that, that would, um, Baijo is hugely alcoholic. It's sometimes up to 60 percent ABV. Um, and so if you're drinking Baijo or these much stronger Chinese liquors, like you drink this very low ABV IROG, you know, two to 3%, uh, that's going to do some serious damage on the body because the other cultural thing that these people uh, had was to uh, be uh, very, uh, you don't eat a little bit. You eat a lot and you drink a lot. And we drink a lot and eat a lot all the time. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> oh good. I'm glad I got the I'm glad I got the, the gist of the question. <laughs> Favorite period of Chinese history. Oh. Um culturally I like the Tong. The Tong is probably one of my favorites. Uh, it's got a lot going on. Um, art, culture, warfare, uh, fashion. So that's, I, I still have a soft spot for that. I also like the song though, and just kind of how Barney Fife they are about everything. They're sort of the lovable goofball of the dynasties. What is the earliest age that the Mongols expected children to be able to kill a large animal? They would certain they would learn to ride um, and start learning arrows, uh, the way of the bow and the horse, uh, oftentimes before they were even capable of walking. They'd learn to ride before they were walking. Um, as such, uh, the, the kill 
a child's first kill was considered a rite of initiation, a rite of passage from true childhood into adulthood. So that might happen around eight or nine years old or sometime, somewhere in that area um, where, uh, yeah, and it was this whole ceremony The your father or your grandfather would take some of the blood of the animal. It might just be a rabbit or something or a deer and they'd smear it some of it on your face and that meant you are officially a man now. <clears throat> but yeah, eight, ten, somewhere in there. <laughs> when I get to the Republic period, whew, that's a long way down the line. Um, there's, that, there's that possibility. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> we'll see where I am physically in the world and how far that lets me go. Um, I, so this this goes until 11.30, is that right? Okay. Awesome. So I think we are just about there, but maybe, maybe if there's another question. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, it was my pleasure. And again, thank you for putting up with the rough start and uh, glad we got that all sorted out and <laughs> glad you all came. And please enjoy, please enjoy all the rest of your day. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.